Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And the rest of you open in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, right before the book of Revelation, 1 John. We're in chapter 2. Uh, just a couple quick things. One to make sure that you know about our missions conference coming up. The weekend of March 15 and 16, I think it is. 16, 17, something like that. I think it's 16 through 18, actually. So mark that on your calendar. We'll have more details for you uh, about that. Um, also, I wanted to let you know that Mary and I will be away for the next couple of weeks on vacation. So we'll be taking a little break from the book of 1 John. Pastor Brian will be here preaching to us. Uh, from the next two Sundays, and then we will resume with 1 John on the first Sunday of March. So some of you know about uh, a guy named John Glenn. John Glenn was uh, the first American to orbit the Earth. Uh, It's fairly common knowledge. Um, I guess I didn't know that he actually went into space uh, later with uh, the, the Discovery Project at age 77. 77 years old, John Glenn, in space. Grandma Moses, maybe some of you haven't heard of her. Artists maybe be familiar with her. She's a very famous folk art painter. Grandma Moses began painting at age 76. That's what she's known for. She's famous as a painter, but didn't start until 76. Christopher Plummer is a very famous actor. He's been in numerous films over the years, but he performed in a movie called Beginners, I think it was back in 2010, and won an Oscar at age 82. 82 years old. Some of you maybe are watching the Winter Olympics as they have started. This last picture is that of a man named Oscar Swan, who in 1920 won a silver medal in the 1920 Olympics at age 72. An Olympic award winner, age 72. These pictures, these stories, I mean, we could go on and on talking about people who very late in life accomplished great things. These stories tend to surprise us and startle us a little bit because, quite frankly, the assumption that a lot of us have is that when we get older, we kind of have to stop accomplishing. We have to stop achieving. There's a stereotype, particular in this culture, that, that when you're young, that's when you really live, but when you get older, that's when you stop living. And you'll hear people say things like, you know, I'm too old for that. I don't do this anymore. I don't do that anymore. I'm too old for that. Spiritually speaking, that is not at all the attitude that we should have toward growing old. What the Bible tells us is that as we grow older, we can expect, actually, our best years to be ahead of us. In the scriptures, we see an emphasis on blessing and fruitfulness for those in old 
age. Look at what it says here in Psalm 92. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. Friends, no matter how old you are, your best years could still be ahead of you. We should get rid of this kind of attitude, particularly as people get into middle age, they get the feeling like my life is grinding to a halt, it's all coming to an end. No, the Bible holds out hope for us as we grow older. There was one person who said growing old is mandatory, growing up is optional. Growing up, spiritually speaking, is something that we can do something about Uh, even now, particularly those of us who are younger. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about here today. We're going through a series on the book of 1 John. And uh, incidentally, John, who wrote this epistle, uh, wrote this, most scholars think, after he was 80 years old. (laughs) So a book in the Bible uh, written by an octogenarian. So we even have that... uh, relevant to us in the study of this book. John has been giving us through these, um, well, at least since the start of chapter two, some diagnostic tests by which we can evaluate our spiritual condition, in particular to evaluate whether we're Christians or not. And it's like John at this point, uh, verses 12 through 14 in chapter two, has come to you know, pause for a second and, and to reflect on the fact that maybe these diagnostic tests have been more discouraging than encouraging. And, and so it's like he just kind of pauses and he breaks and he goes off on a little bit of a tangent and he wants to encourage the people that he's writing to. He wants to encourage Christians. He wants to make sure that they know that they indeed are saved, that they have eternal life, that their sins are forgiven. And so he pauses in this little this little section to offer up this encouragement and uh, that's what we're going to look at today. So if you'd please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 John 2, 12 through 14. John says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. God, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, you noticed as I read this that John has in mind three different categories, and the first that he addresses is this encouragement to children in particular. So he's talking about young men, he's talking about fathers, but here at the beginning of verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children. Um, He repeats his address to each of these groups twice, so he addresses the fathers twice, the children twice, Uh, and the young men twice, and depending on the version of the Bible that you're reading, what you see might be kind of set off in stanzas, almost like it looks like a poem. I mean, that's the way it is here in my ESV Bible. You'll notice that there's a certain kind of uh, repetitive pattern 
that is written here, certain words repeated over and over. And uh, most scholars think probably what is happening here is that John is writing in a particular way to increase the ability of his readers to memorize what he's saying. Now, remember, this is an extremely oral culture. You know, this is long before the internet, long before even the printing press. And so the way information was passed down and memorized is that it was written in tight little repetitive patterns so that they would be easy to remember. And it seems like that's what John is doing here with this passage. The reason why that's significant is because this is one of those passages that's just very easy to just kind of kind of blow by, you know, and not really pay much attention to. But the fact that it's organized in this particular way suggests that John thinks that this is very important for us. And in fact, one commentator said this is the high point of the letter. These passages, 12 through 14, which I, I have to confess in my preparations, I was thinking, you know, I'll just kind of tack this on to the end of a sermon and cover it real quickly. But uh, no, this deserves our extended attention here. Um, so, again, what John has been doing is giving these diagnostic tests. Remember what they are. The first test was the moral test at the beginning of chapter 2. And John was saying, you know, there are certain people who claim to be Christians, but they, they don't obey the law of God. They have no interest in submission to him. And John says those people are liars. They say they're Christians, but they're not because they fail the moral test. They have no interest in obedience to God. And then last Sunday, we considered the social test. And what John said is that there are those who claim to be in the light, claim to be Christians, but they have no love for their brothers and sisters. And he says, actually, those people are walking in darkness. They also are deceived. They fail the test because they have no love for their brothers and sisters. And now we have, again, John kind of breaking from that. We have one other test, the doctrinal test. That's going to come at the end of chapter 2. But for right now, it's like John stops and he wants to encourage his people. Now, here's how we can see that this is the case, because just a little review. If you go back to like verses 4, 6, and 9, I mean, notice how these passages start in chapter 2. Chapter 2, 4, whoever says, chapter 6, whoever says, excuse me, verse 6, whoever says, uh, verse 9, again, whoever says, there's this repeated phrase, and it's like John is saying, you know, there are people out there who would say these things. Wh whoever it is, someone kind of, almost like it maybe is kind of hypothetical, probably more likely he's referring to the false teachers who have been saying these things. He says, whoever says these things, then he goes on to describe them. But in verse 12, notice the change. I am writing to you. That's a, that's a huge change. It's like he's not talking about others out there. He's not talking about the false teachers now. He's honing in now on you. That is, brothers and sisters in Christ, the readers of this letter, those who know Jesus, those who are committed to the church. I'm writing to you now. I have something different in mind for you. You're different than these people who have been saying these other things. And so John wants to bring this home to them and bring comfort and encouragement to their hearts. And so here's how he does this. First of all, he talks about the children. I am writing to you, little children. All sorts of debate about what does he actually mean by children. I, I don't think we should push this too much to think, well, it must be, you know, kids under the age of accountability or, you know, kids in elementary school. I, I think we should consider this a little more loosely. Probably what he means is people who are in the early stages of life 
uh, and even in the early stages of spiritual life. So th these are very young people, maybe not just children, but people in the early stages of their life. And John notes a couple of things about these little children. And the first thing that he says is this, that their sins are forgiven. Verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So this is the main thing that John wants his people to know. You are people whose sins have been forgiven. This is the absolute most central thing for anyone to know if he or she is going to be a Christian. Are your sins forgiven? Now this is not news to you. We talk about this a lot, but not everybody seems to understand this. And it's very easy, I think, for us to lose a sense of how wonderful and great that is. To know that all of our transgressions, all the ways we've fallen short of the glory of God, all of the ways that we have offended him in thought, word, and deed, have been fully pardoned, removed from us as far as the east is from the west, so that we can say with confidence, I have no guilt in life and no fear in death. That's what it is to have your sins forgiven. And he says it's for his name's sake. That's a reference to Jesus. It's because of the name of Jesus. It's because of what Jesus has done. He has died. He has paid the penalty. He has risen from the dead. And now we stand before God without any fear of his wrath or anger. John says, little children, I know this is true of you. You know, do you remember when Donald Trump, sorry to bring up that name, I know it's very controversial, but it's such a good example. Remember when Donald Trump was asked if he'd ever confessed sins before? And do you remember what he said? He said, I'm not sure I ever have. He, he said, I don't like to have to do that. I don't like to have to deal with my sin. I don't like to confess my sin. In fact, I'm not even sure I've ever confessed a sin. Friends, whatever your politics are, you have to acknowledge no Christian says that. No Christian says, I don't have sins to forgive. No Christian says, I don't take my sins before God. That is not the language of a Christian. I have no idea where Donald Trump is now spiritually. But this is the most fundamental thing for a Christian to know, forgiveness of sins. Ultimately, it's not about social activism. It's not about being a moral person. It's not about being a deacon or an elder. It's about knowing your sins are forgiven. And so John wants to make this very clear, and he presses it home. Little children, this is what is true of you. Do, do you remember when you became a Christian? Do you, do you remember the joy of knowing that? Do you remember that time when you realized that all these things you were so full of guilt and shame about have been relieved and marked off your record? I mean, that is such a beautiful thing. And it's what the gospel promises to those who come to Jesus in faith. But John mentions something else. He says also, they know the Father. So this is in verse 13, the bottom of verse 13. The last stanza in verse 13, he writes to the children again. I write to you children because you know the Father. So he says something a little different about the children uh, or those young and early in the stages of their spiritual development. And so again, a very basic thing. He's just saying, here's something I know about you, little children. You have relationship with the Father. You know God. You walk with God. You, you know God not just as the one who created all things, not just as the judge of all mankind, but you know this God as a Father, 
as a merciful, loving, patient father who cares for you. That's how you know God. You have personal relationship with him. You talk with him. He talks to you. Every day you're mindful of his presence. You know that you fall short, but you go to him for forgiveness. He forgives you. He picks you up. You keep going. You sense his blessing. You want to please him and honor him. That's what it is to know God. God is not just some distant prime mover out in space, far away and out of touch and distant and detached. No, he's close by. Close by. He's, he's a father. So as, as children and young people kind of look ahead and plan for how they want to live their lives, and as they look ahead to middle age and old age, you know, it's very common for people who are very young to think the most important things are that I grow in my education and that I am fit and strong physically and that I make money. I mean, that's, that's what a lot of people think. That's their goals that they set out for the future. And it's not that there's necessarily anything wrong with any of those things. But look what Jeremiah says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, if you're going to boast about something, let it be in this, that he understands and knows me. That's the absolute most important chief goal that every young person should have as you look ahead to growing old in life, knowing God through Jesus, so that you might have relationship with the Father. And that's what John is emphasizing. He's talking to his people, and he's saying to you young people, the children, he's saying, I know that's true of you. So rejoice and be glad. You're Christians because your sins are forgiven, and you know the Father. Well, then he moves on, and he provides encouragement to the young. Uh, now, the way he words it here is to the young men in verse 13 and then also in verse 14 and I would say let's not get too hung up on the the pronouns there it's a natural question why doesn't he address the women but like I said last week or the week before it's just it's a very patriarchal society at that time and so it was common to uh, address the male gender as representative of everybody you know very similar to the word we have Mankind, which I know is somewhat controversial today, but the word mankind always intended to include women, and I believe that John intends to include women in these remarks as well, even though he's talking about young men and fathers. So here's what John says as he addresses these young men. So this is a later stage than the stage of the, the little children. So um, th these are people who are older. Again, we don't want to press this too much. You know, is this people in their 20s? You know, I, I don't think that John really wants us to think of it that way, but it's the next stage beyond little children. Uh, these are people who are not brand new Christians anymore. These are people who are um, uh, not children anymore. And for those who have been a Christian for a little while, this is the time when the excitement of being a Christian can kind of tend to, to wear off. You know, life is getting busier and you're in a career, and you're working long hours, and maybe you've got children now, and there's more and more children, and you're, you're busy, and you're running around, and you're still young, and so there's all kinds of sexual temptation. 
that you're facing, and at this time, it's just very easy to kind of drift. It's, it's very easy to lose a sense of that excitement that you once had when you first knew your sins were forgiven and that you had a relationship with the Father. It's like uh, the parable of the sower. Do you remember that? Jesus is talking about sowing the seed, and he says the seed is like the word, and the word is sown, and then he says the cares of the world and the deceit of riches come and choke the word. So it doesn't bear fruit anymore, and it kind of dries up and withers away. And in fact, in another place in that parable, Jesus says that Satan comes and snatches away the word from the hearts of the people in which it's been planted. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to turn your attention away from the word. And so isn't it interesting that this is what John mentions? Verse 13 Um, in the middle of that verse, I'm writing to you young men because you have, what, overcome the evil one. Also at the end of verse 14, you have overcome the evil one. He, He repeats this. And so what he seems to be acknowledging here is that particularly when people grow up, they're a little bit older, but they're still young, that that's the time when the temptation comes. That's the time when Christian living feels more and more like a war like a battle. That's the, the word overcome, kind of gives you this sense of, of, of warfare. And that's what John is expecting from, from these people. It, friends, if you want to truly grow up spiritually, here's one thing that's absolutely certain, and that's you're gonna meet with satanic resistance in your Christian life. You are gonna be doing battle with the devil. If you want to aspire to holiness, you want to be more like Jesus, you want to be separate from the world, you want to honor the Father, you're going to be met with all kinds of pushback. You know, a lot of times this happens. People become Christians, and then they find out that Christian living is actually really difficult, really hard. Things don't go like they thought. They don't get all the successes and victories that they thought. They find themselves more concerned about their sin. They find it more lonely to be living in a world that is hostile to their faith. And they start wondering, did I do something wrong? It's so hard being a Christian. Where did I mess up? Friends, there's nothing wrong. If you're experiencing that kind of hostility and difficulty, that's a sign that Satan wants to take from you the word that the Lord has planted in your heart. And he's mad about it. And he's after you. And so what John is saying here is, young men, I know that's what you've been dealing with. But you've overcome the evil one, he says. You've overcome. Now, how does that happen? Do we overcome the evil one in our own power? Well, absolutely not. So we see something else here. Um, They've overcome the evil one. But the second thing we see about the young is that they're strong in the word. Look at the end of verse 14. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. That's where the strength has come from. That's how young men and women do battle with Satan. It's through the word of God. In the word, in the Bible, in the scriptures, that's where the power is for you young men and women. Look what Ephesians says. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. There's the evil one coming after you, doing battle with you. 
But what Paul says is take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Picture the Word as like a sword. Picture the Word as like a helmet. These are things you put on to do battle, to wage war. And what John is saying here is that this is how the young men have overcome, because they were lovers of the Word. I think I have a quote at the top of your order of worship from Charles Hodge. Um, in opposition to all the suggestions of the devil, the sole, simple, and sufficient answer is the word of God. This puts to flight all the powers of darkness. It drives away our fears. It delivers us from the power of Satan. Remember Jesus in the wilderness. The devil is coming, tempting Jesus. What, how did Jesus do battle with the devil? Quoted scripture. Quoted scripture to every single thing that Satan had to say to our Lord. Friends, th th this is where the battle is lost or won. Are you loving the word? Are you meditating on the word? Do you know the word? Do you remember it? Do you turn it over in your mind? Is your mind saturated with it? If it's not, you're going to be, uh, it's going to be open season uh, for you from the satanic pressures. I, I remember I've told this illustration many times, but I, I went on a mountain bike trip years ago to Moab, Utah, and I've just always remembered this and I've always connected it with the word of God, but as we were riding our bikes kind of out of town and getting close to you know, some of the big hills, I remember our tour guide saying, folks, you better start drinking water right now. I know you might not be thirsty, we're, we're just getting started, but drink water, keep drinking it whether you're thirsty or not, drink, 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 because you're going to need it by the time you get to that hill. Don't wait till you get to the hill to start drinking the water. Drink now, and you'll be able to get up the hill. And if you just think of the Word of God like water, you just got to drink it in, whether you feel thirsty or hungry or not, whether you're in the mood for it or not, whether it's interesting to you or not, you've got to get it in your system so that you're prepared to do battle. So this is the encouragement that John offers to the young. Um, you, you guys, you have overcome the evil one by the power of the word. And then lastly, we have this. There's encouragement to the old. So in verses 13, start of verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers. And then also in verse 14, again, start of verse 14, I'm writing to you fathers. So, so now we're going to the next stage, from the children to the young men, to, to the fathers and, and, and mothers, but these are, these are the older people. You know, in presbytery meetings uh, and a general assembly, which is like the annual business meeting of our denomination, it's, it's interesting when a, a man rises to speak, he'll address the whole body like this. He'll say, fathers and brothers. And we might expect him to say just brothers because they're, they're, you know, we're all brothers. But what I hear very often is that address, fathers and brothers. It's the way to give proper respect to those in the assembly who are older. And so that's why it's often said. And that's, I think, what John has in mind here. These are, these are the mature disciples in the church. These are the spiritually seasoned people. These are the people with considerable life experience. They've seen a lot of stuff. They've dealt with a lot of things. And primarily what that probably means is, they, is that they have walked the path 
of suffering. These are people who have walked for years, perhaps, with a chronic illness. These are people who have maybe um, spent years raising a handicapped child. These are people who remember what it was like when their spouse left them. These are people who know what it is to bury a child. And yet these are people who through it all, these fathers, these mothers, after all these years, after all the heartache, after all the pain, they're still clinging to the gospel. They're still walking with Christ even though they don't have all the answers. They're still coming on Sunday mornings and worshiping Jesus even when their heart is aching and empty. These are the people who say after years of crisis, disappointment, and struggle, they say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And they've been saying that for decades. These are the fathers. These are the mothers. This is one of the great blessings of being part of a church of mixed age. You know, I I would say that. I think that's important, that a church has mixed a diversity of ages it seems like that's what john is acknowledging here right young children young or uh, little children young men and and fathers a, a church with all old people all old people i think is missing something a church with all young people i think is is missing something young people have a lot to learn from the old but you know old people have some things to learn from the young also But in this particular case, we're seeing here these these people, these fathers, these seasoned people who have so much to offer the church. It's such a blessing to have the spiritually seasoned among us. And you young people um, should aspire uh, to be like them one day. I mean, they are here by God's grace for our benefit that we might learn from them and be encouraged by them. Hopefully one day we'll grow up and we'll be a blessing to others the way they are a blessing to us. And so here's what John is saying about these fathers. Now, what is it that makes them such a blessing? And we see that in both of these verses, 13 and 14. Um, the start of verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers. Why? You, you've known him who is from the beginning. And again, start of verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. See, he's not saying because you've known him from the beginning. It's not talking about knowing um, God from the beginning of the Christian life. You know him who is from the beginning. That is, you know the one who, standing before the Pharisees, said, before Abraham was born, I am. That is, you know the one by whom all things were made. You know the one who is before all things. You know and have personal relationship with the pre-existent son, the eternal word made flesh. The second person of the Trinity who has come into the world, taken upon himself flesh that he might give it up on the cross to save and redeem us and to be resurrected from the dead. These fathers and mothers have known him and they have found him faithful. And that's why they're still here. Sunday after Sunday, worshiping our Savior. One of my um, kind of theological heroes is a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in England, 
London, England for many years, died in, I think, 1980. And um, I, I love to tell this story because um, there's a, another pastor who was very ill one day, and he was in the hospital, and it was not looking good for him. And Martin Lloyd-Jones came into his hospital room and prayed for him. And um, this pastor said that I am absolutely convinced that it was that man's prayer that was the turning point in my recovery. And so the man just started reflecting on what, how is it that this man has such an anointing on his ministry through decades of service? And he used this phrase. He said the reason why is because Martin Lloyd-Jones had been building a secret history with God. Throughout all of his life, not out front, in secret, he'd been building this relationship with God. He'd, he'd been coming before God and repenting of his sins. He'd been pleading with God on his knees. He'd been listening to God speak through his word. With the door shut, with nobody watching, he was building a history with God. And he'd been doing that over decades. Can't you see what kind of power can come from a person when they've been doing that for decades? And that's what this pastor was, was convinced of. Lloyd-Jones had been with Jesus. And that's why this prayer that he offered on my behalf was such a turning point in my recovery. That's my encouragement to you, friends. It's never too late to start building a secret history with God. Start building it now. You don't have to make a big deal out of it. Nobody has to know about it. You don't have to even tell your spouse about it. But get away and meet with him and humble yourself before him. Get his word in your mind and plead with him. Pray to him. Praise him. Request from him. Walk with him. And you might never win an Oscar at the age 82, and you might never win an Olympic medal at age 70. To, um, but if at the end of your life you're loving Jesus and you're loving others and you're still bearing fruit there is no privilege there is no affirmation greater than that to look ahead to growing old in grace and bearing fruit even in old age that's our prayer for all of us here at New Life let's pray Father thank you so much for the wisdom of your word Father, help us to not dread growing old, but to be excited about it because you are a God who has promised to finish the work you've started in us, and we can't wait to see, Lord, what you're going to do in all of us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.